were supposed to provide me six weeks of delicious content. I wanted to see Rupert Murdoch put his hand on the Bible and burst into flames. Denied the sight, Rupert Murdoch testifying when Fox News settled with Dominion Voting. Those of us who pine for lurid details about Murdoch's media empire can simply look back. His first local papers are in San Antonio. He buys a couple of papers and he lights that town on fire by giving the people what they want. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media, I'm Brooke Gladstone. When trying to understand Rupert Murdoch, does a fictional TV show help? Succession lets us see Logan Roy, this kind of Rupert Murdoch stand-in, in all of these intimate situations because they get to make it all up. It's all coming up after this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Earlier this week, media reporters descended on Wilmington, Delaware, to see one of the biggest First Amendment cases of the century, a lawsuit brought by a voting technology company. Dominion had accused Fox News of knowingly pushing false conspiracy theories about what former President Trump had claimed were rigged voting machines following the 2020 presidential election. Part of this case centered on what Fox News hosts said on air to millions versus what some of them were saying and texting in private about these false claims. But I'm telling you that everyone involved in the case on the ground here were prepping to go to trial full bore. So this thing was going forward. Jim Rutenberg, writer-at-large for The New York Times and its Sunday magazine, was there. There we are in the court. It's starting. The jury is impaneled. There's actually some jousting between the Fox lawyers and the Dominion lawyers. The room charged with anticipation. And suddenly, just as we're all gathered, 1.30 p.m. on Tuesday to hear these opening arguments, the judge disappears, the jury doesn't come out, and then the minutes tick by, the minutes become a half hour, a half hour becomes an hour, two hours, and then, lo and behold, late afternoon. Stephen Colbert said it best. I want my trial. You were supposed to provide me six weeks of delicious content. I wanted to see Rupert Murdoch put his hand on the Bible and burst into flames. The two sides agreed to a $787.5 million settlement just hours after the jury was seated. And it was pretty dramatic. Yeah, dramatic how, though? Did you hear a lot of reporters cursing? (laughs) Well, I think no matter what, Everyone in that room was eager to see this big fight over libel law in this country in the age of disinformation. A case that actually had a chance of being won because the thing that makes it so hard, proving flagrant disregard of the truth, was a little easier in this case. Yeah, the Dominion lawyers managed to get their hands on pretty extensive discovery For weeks before trial, we were seeing Fox and its corporate parent, the Fox Corporation, led by Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch, knew that this conspiracy theory was as bonkers as everybody else knew it to be outside. The highest-ranking executives at Fox News, Rupert Murdoch, Suzanne Scott, the CEO, as well as some of the top hosts, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, they knew these election fraud claims from the Trump team were nonsense. They used very harsh language to describe them but they allowed these lies to take hold on the network's air. Dominion was focused on particularly 20 instances of the conspiracy getting unfettered access to their airwaves. Now, the thing at trial would have been who was really responsible, did Rupert Murdoch control the shows per se, so there were going to be a lot of technicalities, but it was going to be an accountability moment. The Dominion attorney said money is accountability, but the public doesn't get to hear what happened. Well, 
the lawyer's answer to that, and they've been asked a lot, is that ultimately their responsibility was to their client. Mm -hmm. The client wanted its reputation restored. They think they achieved that much because in their view, all those things you're talking about, democracy, misinformation, the sanctity of our elections, they were in the mix, but this trial was really about these 20 statements and what they did to Dominion Voting Systems' reputation and its bottom line. Right. And it wasn't their responsibility to serve the nation in this regard. I get that. It's just frustrating. And you wrote, the one question that only time will answer is whether the settlement was enough to cause Fox News to change the way it handles such incendiary and defamatory conspiracy content. The amount was huge. Fox News certainly doesn't want to see a similar settlement anytime soon, notably a $2.7 billion suit from another election technology company, Smartmatic. You said only time will answer whether Fox will change its ways. But would you venture a guess? It's hard, right? Because even as this trial was moving forward, and you'd think that Fox would want to really be minding its P's and Q's. The host, Tucker Carlson, was running programming that was basically, even according to Mitch McConnell, the top Republican in the Senate, and according to Special Report, its main news show, that was misrepresenting what happened on January 6th through selective editing of video. So Fox has seemed to have been able to get out of this without having to make any great mea culpa. But this was not good for them. So will they do anything to avoid it? And that's going to come down to two things. Does the desperation for ratings, which led it to defame Dominion, override everything once again? Or is there a realization that we need to pull back from the brink? But what we now know is there has to be someone being defamed. You can say all kinds of things about people who aren't going to sue right? The difference was that here was a company that was ready to sue and had a lot of money to hire an incredible team of lawyers. We have Smartmatic coming around the horizon. Will we expect something different in that case? I have to imagine that one settles. Because the one thing Fox really wants to do here is skip past all this discovery that was out in the ether. Its audience, we all know, is in a certain bubble. It has not been greatly exposed to all of the emails and the texts that other media have been focusing on. But that discovery can come back. They don't want that. But they also don't want to send a signal that we're open season, come to us, and we're going to give you money to go away. So they're in a bind. Some people have submitted that Rupert Murdoch won. No, really? I don't agree with it, but that's a view because they're not having to make any kind of big apology on air. Something that Dominion really wanted. And we're still trying to find out what changed there. People point to the money, kind of obvious. But I don't think he won here. And we're going to see what Wall Street thinks of this. How many big settlements is Wall Street going to put up with? And eventually, does the board have to act? So there's some considerable accountability going on here, no matter what. Your 2019 article is called How Rupert Murdoch's Empire Remade the World. Quote, Murdoch and his feuding sons turned their media outlets into right-wing political influence machines that have destabilized democracy in North America, Europe, and Australia. Give me some examples of the impact of the Murdoch empire on world culture. Look in Australia. His newspapers, they are absolute leader makers. If they want to see a prime minister go they can do a lot to push that person out. That was happening in 2019. They had been part of this push to get rid of Prime Minister Turnbull. Then look to Brexit. Brexit was fascinating because one thing that gets lost in the Rupert Murdoch storytelling is that he has some outlets that are much more responsible and much better grounded in basics of journalism. Times of London, Wall Street Journal. So in the UK, the Times of London was not pro-Brexit. The UK Sun his tabloid was. And the UK Sun is so much more influential because it plays to these populist passions. So the Sun and Rupert Murdoch were very much helping along this process toward Brexit and really pushing the limits of journalism as they did so. That's Britain. Now here, do we have to even go beyond this Dominion case? 
you had hosts like Tucker Carlson night after night for many nights in a row saying, something's going on here. Even when Tucker Carlson would hedge a little bit, I'm just asking questions. And that means we have to answer them. For example, in Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Michigan, the Trump campaign has now collected signed affidavits that attest to criminal activity during the voting process. In the city of Detroit, witnesses have alleged under oath that ballots were improperly backdated and counted without matching signatures. Now, all of that is real. We spent all weekend checking it. False claims of fraud can be every bit as destructive as the fraud itself. So we need to be careful and responsible, all of us. But what we just told you is true, and there's more of it. If you're buying into that, that would be enraging to any sentient being if an election really had been stolen. So that matters. And that was really in the mix here. So Murdoch got his start in Australia. Then he went to the UK, moved into media markets, notably in the US, also in India and China. What is his playbook, Jim? How does the empire work? That story really starts when Rupert lands in the US in 1973. I could go farther back for you, but I think that's early enough Mm -hmm. for a pattern. He came here and he made a very simple declaration. We're going to give the public what they want. And when he comes into the U.S., Watergate is going down. The press is at the height of its power in this country based on the notion of reporting the news without fear and favor, journalism post-World War II. So like the journalism that helped give attention to the civil rights movement, the journalism that helped stop the Vietnam War. In Murdoch's view, when he lands here, these journalists are now getting too full of themselves. They're losing touch with their public. They think they know what's best. And I'm just going to give them what they want. His first local papers are in San Antonio. He buys a couple of papers and he lights that town on fire by giving the people what they want. These screaming headlines. And by the way, San Antonio had a paper that was part of the Hearst chain, not known as a shrinking violet chain, but he out-Hearsted Hearst. And that repeats itself again and again and creates extraordinary success for him. So let's talk about 1980. He meets Roy Cohn, the former advisor to Senator Joe McCarthy, a Trump mentor, who introduces Rupert to Governor Ronald Reagan's inner circle. He also introduced him to a Cohn aide-de-camp named Roger Stone, That was the beginning of Rupert's incredible American political journey because Rupert Murdoch at the time owned the biggest paper at that time, the New York Post. We think of the New York Post now, it's fairly big, but it's a New York City paper. It was then too, but it was one of the biggest papers in the country. And New York at the time was a contestable state. Reagan had a chance to win it. And Rupert, after meeting Cohn and working with Cohn's aide-de-camp, Roger Stone, they turned the Post into a pamphlet for Reagan. And that is credited with helping Reagan win New York. Maybe that would have happened anyway. Reagan was incredibly popular, but Rupert was ready to take his credit for it and to get what he wanted from the Reagan administration. Which was? He wanted loosened regulation because Rupert already knew he had an eye on getting into television, broadcast television, because I think people forget that in 1980, cable's there, you have CNN, But it's not in every household. At that time, broadcast television was where it's at. And broadcast television was hyper-regulated in terms of political content, in terms of what you could own. So what Rupert Murdoch really wanted was a way to keep his newspapers and buy television stations to start a network. The law blocked him from doing that. You weren't allowed to own a TV station and a newspaper in the same market. Yes. Reagan waived that prohibition allowed Murdoch to hold on to his big metro dailies, the Post, the Boston Herald, even when he moved TV into both cities. That was a big deal. It allowed him to start this fourth network, which took him to a whole other stratosphere. By the way, another thing that happened, though, was that we had prohibitions, still have prohibitions, on who can own an American television station. Murdoch was an Australian citizen. Well, during the Reagan administration, he managed to get his American citizenship very fast. (laughs) <laughs> very fast. He's always denied. He calling any favors, but Democrats at the time were very suspicious. So the Reagan administration was very, very good to Rupert Murdoch. The final word on Murdoch is always, it's about the money. He'll dance with Hillary Clinton. He'll dance with Donald Trump, with Tony Blair, with whomever in order to get what he wants. 
Is it about the money now or is it about politics? Has he changed? Well, there are different views on that question from people who know him well. Okay, but I just want to say one thing. Yes, it's about the money, always about the money. But I always think the politics and the power have always been mixed up together. Yes, he'll dance with the liberal, but when he's dancing with Tony Blair, Tony Blair's also getting behind the war in Iraq, which Rupert Murdoch really wanted. So certain kinds of Democrats he'll flirt with, but inexorably, the line he's drawn has been to the right and the influence he's exerted has been conservative. Now, has he changed? There's a view among some people around him that, yes, he has in fact changed, that he'd like to see himself as afflicting the powerful and fighting for the little guy. And that was the way his papers, the tabloids, positioned themselves. Standing up for the have-nots? Is that what you're saying? Yes, and someone outside the elite circles, which Mm -hmm. on one level, I mean, he was born of incredible privilege. But self-image for all of us, right, drives you more than reality sometimes. But there is a view that as he got more inside the halls of power, he did change. But what hasn't changed, and it's clear in the transcripts that came out in this Dominion trial, is there's always been this sort of nonchalance about it. Like, oh, everyone's getting all worked up about this democracy stuff. Give me a break. We're not responsible for that. The rest of the press, mostly liberal, they just are out to get me anyway. So there's a lot of consistency. Some people see some differences over time. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because the result is the same and the result's what we all live with. Right. Jim, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Jim Rutenberg is a writer for The New York Times. Smartmatic's $2.7 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News is pending. The trial date is still to be determined. Coming up, the nation's main media mogul, as seen on TV. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And that's the ghoulish gothic opera theme of the wildly popular show Succession, currently in its fourth and final season on HBO. The show's creator and showrunner, Jesse Armstrong, asserts that Succession is inspired by more than just the Murdochs. If you look at the American media landscape, you have CBS, owned by Viacom, which is a family business, the Redstones, you have... NBC, which is a family business owned by Comcast, the Roberts family, you have ABC, which was Disney and which is no longer a family firm, but the politics are kind of Byzantine and not unlike our show. You have the Sinclair family who are buying up most of local TV. You have the Mercer family who are all over the data mining. There are a lot of influential media families in the US for us to think about and draw on. Which, sure, But the parallels between the Roy family in succession and the real-life Murdochs are hard not to see. You've got the aging media mogul, the sparring kids, the divorces, the young girlfriends, the big sale of much of the company. And it was rumored that some Murdoch family members might have leaked storylines, like this family therapy scene, to the show. Disagreeing with Dad is not treason. Mm, but trying to make one of his biggest enemies president is kind of a f*** you. Oh, hey, Dad. Dad, 
I like those stories you planted about me. That was... <laughs> yeah, you forced my hand. There it is. Yes, and he's lucky, that was all. What you kids do not understand, it's all part of the game. Robert Thompson is a professor of television, radio, and film at Syracuse University. He says the characters in succession are rather Shakespearean, but he objects to the incessant comparisons to King Lear. True, the patriarch, Logan Roy, as his name suggests, is a kind of a king, but that's where the similarity ends. In that Logan Roy is a lot smarter than King Lear. It's as though Logan Roy had seen enough productions of Lear to know not to do what Lear does. In the very first scene, if I'm not mistaken, of King Lear, the king marches out with a map and says, here are my territories, I'm going to divide them up between my three children. It is our fast intent to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strengths. What can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? Nothing, my lord. Well, nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. The beginning of King Lear, the heirs are announced. Rupert Murdoch has still not divided up the map. If I go under a bus tomorrow, the four of them will have to decide which of the ones should lead them. Who among them ought to be the heir apparent? In terms of power, yes, in terms of leadership. They'll get treated equally financially. And nor did Logan Roy. You are not serious figures. I love you, but you are not serious people. The other big parallel between Logan Roy and Rupert Murdoch is the inseparable relationship between the media and political power. Right. In this dance with political power and journalism, administrations come and go. These big, mogul-run journalistic operations are there for the long run. Fox News has got more chronological continuity than the American Democratic Republic. Think how many presidents, how many congresses have changed since Fox News starts in the mid-1990s. Political leaders come and go. Rupert Murdoch comes, but never goes. (laughs) And yet... For most people, he's pretty much known as an old guy who has romantic relationships with not-so-old women and just a very powerful global force of conservatism. What does succession perhaps tell us or doesn't tell us? Succession lets us see Logan Roy, this kind of Rupert Murdoch stand-in, in all of these intimate situations because they get to make it all up. People can now watch Succession and, like a Trojan horse, secretly get in on all the things that are really going on in a big, mogul-run operation like Murdoch's. That would seem good, that we're getting through fiction some kind of the, the foundation of what's going on in fact. However, I have found, even in my own watching of this show, I'm ashamed to say, that there is what I would call the Archie Bunker effect. Remember Archie Bunker back in the 70s was this bigoted guy who said all kinds of things that were racist and sexist. If you don't keep quiet over there, I'm going to call the cops on you. Hear that? Nothing. Them colored people are all scared of the cops. (laughs) But because he was on every week, he became this kind of lovable bigot. It is true that Archie Bunker, for all of his bigotry and ignorance was a lovable figure to many people who felt that he was winking at them, just like the Stephen Colbert right-wing character he played on the Colbert Report was also seen, (laughs) to the horror of Colbert perhaps, of being a winking acknowledgement of the truth. But the difference is that Archie Bunker was fundamentally a loser, and Logan Roy is a winner. It's true. At the end of every episode of Archie Bunker, he was exposed as the buffoon. He spouted all that racist stuff when Sammy Davis Jr. was in his living room, but Sammy Davis Jr. kisses him in the final scene of that episode. I want one picture taken with Archie Bunker, my friend, and me. You want me? Yes. Now, on three, okay? One, two, three. (laughs) 
we get to see the bigot. He becomes lovable, but he's, he's always exposed as the loser and the buffoon. Now we have Logan Roy, who is completely unredeemable, and he always wins. And there is something kind of appealing about that. Logan Roy, in his ruthless success by any means necessary, I think has got a modern 21st century American appeal. Donald Trump very much played up that. I'm rich, I'm successful, and therefore I should be admired. And I think that might be one of the dangerous and insidious things about succession. Yes, it teaches us maybe about some of the at least metaphorical detail of what's going on with the Murdoch operation, but it also domesticates it. And I am sure there are a number of people you could find if you went out on the street who would be happy to sport a Logan Roy for President Button. (laughs) Some of them with a wink and a nod, some of them completely seriously. You have said, though, that if the show were less good, it would probably cleave more to the Murdoch story than it actually does. What I think makes Succession a fine work of television art is the fact that, like so many other things, it is inspired by real things, but it then brings them the art and artifice that allows it to be more interesting. If we're watching the real series that is Rupert Murdoch, every now and again, things happen that are really unsatisfying from an artistic dramatic standpoint. The settlement that just happened (laughs) is a perfect example of that. So I think it's a testament to Succession's quality that it's not directly mirroring what's happening. If nothing else, and I haven't heard Rupert Murdoch talk a lot, but Logan Roy is certainly a more rhetorically dynamic person than Rupert Murdoch is. Anyone who believes that I'm getting out, please shove the bunting up your (laughs) This is not the end. I'm going to build something better. Something faster, lighter, meaner, wilder. And I'm going to do it from in here, with you on. You're pirates! You know, in great art, even when you are basing it on something, let's go back to our friend Shakespeare, his history plays. If you want to know the history of the reign of Richard III, you do not watch Shakespeare's Richard III. No. There's all kinds of liberties taken, both in the source material and everything else. However, if you want an extraordinary, fictional, dramatic, artistic, transcendent experience, you don't go to the sources and read the history of Richard III. You watch Shakespeare's Richard III. Right. What about the impact of Murdoch's empire on the broader culture? I think Rupert Murdoch has probably been more successful at doing bad things for the future of democracy and the republic that many other people have been doing for a long time. He's just been really, really good at it. However, we also have to acknowledge that within that building up of that empire, some really interesting and I think good things happen. The best example of that would be the Fox Broadcasting Network. And it really did provide alternative programming, including some voices that were not heard in the usual oligopoly of ABC, CBS, and NBC. The Simpsons, before The Daily Show came along, was probably the most trenchant political and social satire we had on all of regular broadcast television. In Living Color would certainly not have gotten the Fox News seal of approval. I always used to say that in many ways it was once again brilliant synergy in that the Fox network would play TV shows that would then give the people on the Fox News channel (laughs) next morning something to be outraged about. This brings us to the final assessment of Rupert Murdoch and his impact on the culture and what he really cared about. Rupert Murdoch, I think, in the end, will be most remembered for really solidifying a major change in the way we think about what we once called journalism. And I think in almost every case, he did that to the detriment of real journalism. 
And there's no way the Simpsons can compensate for that? If I'm up at the gates of St. Peter's and I'm putting the Simpsons on one end of the scale and Fox News on the other end of the scale, I'm sorry, Bart, but I just don't think you're going to outweigh that. (laughs) Bob Thompson, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Robert Thompson is pop culture scholar at Syracuse's Newhouse School of Public Communications. There is one bright side. I'm also forbidden from ever watching Fox. You can't even show it in the bar? That's right. And business has never been better. Oh, hey, how's it going there, Mr. Murdoch? Never mind me. Put on the Jay Leno show. Uh, Have you seen this? Uh, The president says Iran has gotten a hold of the most dangerous weapon known to man. The BP oil rig. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. I know how to make that leak disappear. Put it on NBC. (laughs) Coming up, the cozy relationship between Clarence Thomas and Harlan Crow is about something much larger than a simple quid pro quo. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Z-Biotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. This is on the media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Earlier this month, ProPublica broke news about Clarence Thomas and a Texas real estate tycoon. For years, Justice Clarence Thomas has secretly accepted luxury gifts from a GOP mega-donor, Harlan Crow. He took these trips to places like New Zealand, Indonesia, on private uh, yachts, private jets. A $500,000 trip to Indonesia one year. Many of these trips went undisclosed on Thomas's ethics filing, despite that being required by law. Clarence Thomas has also reported accepting gifts. In 2002, $1,200 worth of tires from an Omaha businessman. A Bible once owned by the abolitionist Frederick Douglass, which Thomas valued at $19,000. And a bust of President Lincoln valued at $15,000. It is the unreported largesse that is illegal. But to Corey Robin, journalist, professor, and author of The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, none of it is surprising. Robin says that accepting these gifts, these friendships, are of a piece with Thomas's most deeply held beliefs and his jurisprudence. Thomas always was open in his views. A black nationalist who held that whites and blacks could never really be reconciled and that the only path to power in America was to use the readiest tool at hand, one that could be wielded with relative equality, money. In a way, as you will hear, it has shaped his decisions on everything from the right to refuse to bake a cake for a gay wedding to campaign finance reform. In a piece this week in Politico, Corey Robin noted that corruption is far more amorphous and pernicious than a simple quid pro quo. The way corruption often happens is that you have men of wealth and men of power who are part of a fraternity. They exchange words and they exchange ideas and they gain each other's respect and trust. And Thomas is a particularly important person in that fraternity because he really believes in the worthiness and the legitimacy in the standing and in the stature of those men of wealth. He wants those men of wealth to play more of a role in our society. So he takes their words very, very seriously. The problem here is that Thomas not only doesn't really hide from that, he's created an entire jurisprudence that justifies that. 
these are men who already see pretty much eye to eye on the broad questions, right? Absolutely. Thomas, you say, is someone who believes in the moral authority of rich people and businessmen, which is quite interesting because Thomas's upbringing was not one of wealth and ease. And you would think that maybe he would see a moral authority perhaps in poverty. Not at all. And it's a very good question. One of the most important people in Thomas's life was his grandfather, Myers Anderson, whom he came to live with when he was six years old. Thomas had lived for his first six years in tremendous poverty. But Myers Anderson owned his own business, delivering wood and then coal and then finally oil to members of the black community in Savannah. Thomas's grandfather was able to build a solid middle-class home for Clarence Thomas and his brother, put them through private schools, and eventually amass a bit of property and become a landlord. When Thomas thinks of wealth, he really thinks of people like Myers Anderson. In other words, they began dirt poor. I think Myers Anderson was maybe one or two generations removed from slavery himself. But they were able to build an institution that protected the members of the Black community that came within its ambit. In a 1987 speech at a libertarian think tank in San Francisco, Clarence Thomas really set out his views about wealth and American politics. The center character was his grandfather, and Thomas's critique and attack on American liberalism was that it viewed men like his grandfather with scorn. He still has in his mind this stolid man of discipline, of limited wealth, who created a protective institution in which someone like Clarence Thomas could not only survive, but eventually thrive. Mm -hmm. You wrote that in the 60s and 70s, progressive lawmakers treated the freedom of political speech as sacrosanct and spent decades building legal protections around it. And in that... Thomas saw a chance to apply those same legal protections to business activities. Exactly. In the 1960s and in the 1950s, the 1970s, the Supreme Court and liberals came to a kind of settlement. Anything that the government did in terms of economic regulations, laws about business and all the rest of it, the Supreme Court would essentially give the executive branch and the legislature a pretty free hand. The idea being that these were legislative and political activities that did not rise to the level of constitutional scrutiny. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there was a sphere of activity that really did deserve constitutional protection. And the heart of those activities, the palladium of liberty, as it was called, was the freedom of speech, that words are our most intimate expression of who we are. We reveal ourselves as individuals, as citizens, through our speech. And so sacred is that activity that we have to do everything we can in our society to protect it from the regulation and repression and constriction of the government and of the state. Hence, the First Amendment. And conservatives looked at that settlement and they thought to themselves, this really puts us in a bind because it means the business community can be regulated, strangled, constricted in all sorts of ways, and the Constitution has nothing to say about it. So what are we going to do? And the innovation of the conservative movement in the 1970s, and Thomas articulates this very clearly in this 1987 speech, is that if we can reimagine the activity of the businessman, the activity of the banker, not as economic activity, but as speech. Perhaps that activity will then ascend in the moral imagination of America and ascend in its constitutional status, becoming something deserving of the protection of the Supreme Court. And where they begin this process is with advertising. Advertising, of course, is a form of speech. It involves words and images. When I was a kid, Mobile, the oil company, would take out a quarter-page ad on the uh, op-ed page. It was a learned exegesis of the value of fossil fuels. And the question is, is that an advertisement 
Or is that political speech? And conservatives made the case, and the court eventually came around to this position, that that kind of advertising is, in fact, political speech. Mm -hmm. That was like the Trojan horse. They started moving out from there to all different kinds of other things. So if we can jump ahead 30 years, we had that case coming out of Colorado of the cake mm -hmm. maker, the wedding cake maker. Right. The wedding cake maker did not want to make cakes for gay couples. And that was primarily a religious freedom case. Thomas and Gorsuch wrote another opinion saying, in addition to violating religious freedom, this violated the free speech of the cake maker because making a cake is like an artistic form of expression. And you note that Elena Kagan recognized the dangers of this position in her dissent for Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. She said that the First Amendment was being weaponized. What she went on to say in that dissent of hers is, let's think about this. What part of the economy does not involve speech? You can't fire someone without either putting it into writing or saying to them, you're fired. In fact, all of American business activity operates on the basis of written contracts. Kagan was saying... Look what's going on here. They're taking bit by bit pieces of the economy, enveloping them in the fact that they come as speech acts, and then having done that, saying now they all have to come up under the scrutiny of the First Amendment. And that under this approach, you suggest the constitutional and civilizational order of the New Deal could have been overturned. Exactly, because... Going back to that 1987 speech that Thomas gives, Thomas was talking about these mid-century liberals. Uh, he had people like John Kenneth Galbraith in mind. And what Thomas claimed was that they viewed money as really in bad form, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. That there was something unseemly about it. Instead, the people that they valued, these liberals, according to Thomas, were what Thomas called the idealistic professions. Journalists, professors, lawyers. And Thomas describes them as people who make their living by producing words. There's something about speech that is elevated in the mind of the liberal. This is really the original cultural war between the right and the left. Really a civilizational struggle over the status of the man of words and the man of money. And Thomas saw it as his project to remoralize the businessman and the banker, to give them not just constitutional status, but cultural status. So what might have been in Kagan's mind when she made that observation was the 1976 case Buckley versus Vallejo. That's a landmark case that ruled that limitations on campaign contributions are a legitimate means of eliminating the, quote, reality or appearance of corruption in the electoral process. And Thomas has spent decades successfully chipping away at this. Exactly. There's this famous Wallace Stevens poem where he says money is a kind of poetry. And Thomas takes that very seriously. When we make a donation to a candidate, we're not simply assisting their campaign. We're expressing our values. And Thomas runs with that fact because he says, in modern politics, we're always doing this. Most mm -hmm. American citizens, when they try to express their opinions, in addition to voting, they have to speak through a medium. And you have a lot of small-dollar donors who give their money to various campaigns in the hopes that speaking through that medium, their message will get out. And Thomas says that is the nature of democracy. That's why money is speech. But Thomas acknowledges that in American democracy, these campaigns are expensive. He says quite directly that costly campaigns require big donors. This is in McConnell versus Federal Election Commission, which was a case in 2003. He says the only effect that the immense aggregations of wealth will have on an election is that they might be used to fund communications to convince voters 
to select certain candidates over others. <laughs> Duh. Corporations, he goes on to say, on behalf of their shareholders, will be able to convince voters of the correctness of their ideas. He doesn't hide this anywhere. This isn't tucked in a footnote somewhere. This is a Supreme Court opinion. Mm -hmm. He is providing a roadmap here about why wealthy people, like everybody else, will seek to speak through their donations to convince candidates to take their positions and then ultimately to have those positions prevail in American government. And you say that for too long, progressives have fought a losing battle to strengthen campaign finance laws, claiming that money isn't speech, arguing that the Roberts Court and Citizens United are solely to blame. But that ship, you say, had already long sailed. So what is the actual issue at hand? So if we go back to that Buckley versus Vallejo decision, right there in that statement, which was co-authored by William Brennan and Thurgood Marshall, the two great liberal justices of the second half of the 20th century, they accepted the position that money is speech. That is in that decision. So for instance, when a campaign spends money, in that decision, the court rules those expenditures cannot be limited. Because if you were to limit those expenditures, you are essentially limiting the speech of a candidate or of a campaign. So one half of the political process that involves money, namely campaign expenditures, is completely off limits from government regulation. And there is another sentence in that opinion that says, if you are going to limit, and now we're talking about campaign contributions, and as you said earlier, you can limit contributions for the sake of protecting against the stench and taint and appearance of corruption. But what you cannot do is to limit campaign contributions for the sake of equalizing speech. If you're doing it to try to level the playing field, uh-uh, that violates the spirit of the First Amendment. Hmm. We have there in the, quote, money is speech on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the statement that you cannot regulate money for the sake of equalizing speech. That has been the settlement upon which liberals have been trying to construct a campaign finance regime that would protect democracy from money and failing to do so. And I think really requires us perhaps to rethink that approach. So have at it, Corey. <laughs> I think the problem comes in that question about equality which everybody on the court, from the liberals to conservatives, took off the table. Because if money is speech, then there is no way that the voices of those of us who are small donors, the individual voices, will ever be the equivalent of the voice of a Harlan Crow. The real issue is the distribution of money in the economy. That's a really long and rocky road. <laughs> it certainly is. However, it's a road that has been trodden many a time before, going back to the foundation of the American Republic. People like Noah Webster, who gave us our dictionary, were very alert to the problem of concentrations of wealth. It would be essentially impossible to have a republic or a democracy when there were concentrations of wealth. And over the course of the 20th century, we didn't do a great job, but we did a decent job in leveling those concentrations, such that the distance between the poorest person in America and the wealthiest person was imaginable, let's say. It was a span that one could imagine. Today, that distance is unimaginable. And we come back to this question of money and speech. If Noah Webster could say, we're never gonna have a democracy, if some people have a lot more money than others and a lot more wealth and property. He said that without equal distribution of wealth and power, liberty expires. Exactly. No freedom unless there is equal freedom for all. This Harlan Crow scandal has really opened up. It's not just how much money wealthy people have. It's how much money is required for them to have the access. So I think this is an opportunity not to have the same old discussion about campaign finance reform. But that at least is possible in order to reduce the astronomical distance between the rich and poor, 
would require the sorts of regulations that would probably be impossible now because they would be seen as impinging on the speech of business. Yeah, I agree. That's exactly what needs to be taken on. But if you can point out that, in a way, Clarence Thomas and the right have charted our course for us when they claimed that money was speech, if that is true, you cannot have a democracy in the political sphere unless you democratize the distribution of money in the economic sphere. When we engage in questions of distribution in the economic sphere, when we are battling over things like the minimum wage and all these other things, we're not just dealing with economic questions. These are cultural questions. These are who gets to talk in our society. I mean, we do have a very sophisticated discourse, for instance, around the question of race and whose voices get heard in the media. The one thing we have not really had a reckoning on that question of who gets to speak and who gets heard is the question of money. In the fallout from the ProPublica report, progressives have called for a hearing regarding Thomas's actions, maybe even his impeachment. What's your take on that? I don't think it'll go anywhere. From the very beginning, the man had the taint of illegality. Almost everybody who has studied this issue knows that he committed perjury before the Senate when testifying about Anita Hill. That, in the end, didn't do anything to affect his career on the court. In a few years, he will be the longest-serving justice in American history. These kinds of allegations and charges don't really make a dent in him because he now has at least four brethren on the court who are willing to side with him. His power only grows. This friendship between Clarence Thomas and Harlan Crow necessarily implies that rich people are heard more than poor people. You know, we have a tradition of one person, one vote. And the premise of that tradition is that nobody is worth more than anybody else. And that was a long and hard-fought battle, fought through questions of slavery, fought through the question of the denial of the vote to women, and so on. And we won that battle. The most grievous assault and undoing of that battle has been, I would argue, these decisions about the value of the man of money, that he is, in fact, worth more, not just in the economic sphere, but in the political sphere. That has been the work of Clarence Thomas. And if we hope to have any kind of a democracy, that work has to be undone. Corey, thank you very much. Thank you. Corey Robin is a political theorist and journalist, and he is the author of The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. And that's the show. On the Media is produced by Michael Lowinger, Eloise Blondio, Molly Schwartz, Rebecca Clark Callender, Candace Wong, and Suzanne Gaber, with help from Tammy George. Our technical directors, Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Andrew Nerviano and Sham Sundra. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. <laughs>